This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we're taking a look at what's happening in North Carolina politics for the week of Monday, March 29th. Hello and welcome to Under the Dome. Uh, I am Will Dorn from the News and Observer here with my colleague Danielle Battaglia. It is Monday and we are going to tell you all about what is in store for the week ahead at the legislature. Uh, It's looking like it'll probably be a pretty light week. Uh, We know that the, the Senate will be taking some votes on Monday night, but the House won't. The House will be taking some votes on Tuesday and Wednesday, maybe Thursday, Uh, definitely not Friday. Friday obviously is Good Friday, um, and everyone is pretty eager to get out of town uh, for Easter, go back and spend some time at home with their families, Um, and then they are taking spring break uh, the week after that. Uh, So anything that they don't get done this week will have to wait until (laughs) mid-April. It was funny, uh, on the House floor Thursday, of last week, Speaker Tim Moore started calling it their spring break and then stopped himself and said, recess. <laughs> said, spring break, recess. <laughs> I didn't realize you got a spring break after school. This is new to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe maybe he was trying to cut down on some of the uh, the FOMO that people would have. Uh, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> Politicians get spring breaks? <laughs> they want to hang out with their kids. It's okay. <laughs> We'll we'll give them that one. Uh, they they do not get paid very well for being in the legislature, so they can have a a week of vacation. So uh, this coming week, uh, you know, obviously we could see a little bit of a crunch to get stuff done since they are going to be taking a week off after that. We don't really know a ton of the schedule yet. So far um, on Tuesday, for people who are interested in coastal issues, there's actually a ton of coastal related bills coming up in one of the committees. In the Senate, uh, they're going to be doing, um, looks like, talking about a pretty major overhaul of some of the rules governing uh, commercial fisheries. There's also another bill that would allow towns like Newburn to have more control over their navigable waters, which is, you know, places where people would be boating or swimming. Probably, you know, some local, you know, town leaders wanted that bill. We'll see how that goes. Uh, another bill to study the uh, the habitats of some wildlife out on the coast. Uh, so a lot of coastal issues going on Tuesday. People who live out there or care about those sorts of issues will definitely want to uh, tune in if they can to listen. Uh, those meetings are obviously all are streaming on the legislature's website, which is ncledge.gov. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that. But uh, <laughs> shout out to the uh, to the legislature for a little more transparency this year than we have seen in years past with uh, more things streaming and available online and things like that. There will also be next week some things on juvenile justice. Uh, that is kind of the next front in the, the criminal justice reform fights that uh, we kind of saw get started up last year after the George Floyd protests. Uh, So we're going to see some stuff on that next week. I will get into that later on in this podcast. But first, I want to talk about elections issues. Uh, We are only, what, not even six months past the 2020 elections, and yet we are already uh, fighting over how the 2022 elections and beyond are going to be played out. The head of the state elections board, Karen Brinson-Bell, has been hauled in twice now in front of the legislature, once in the House, once in the Senate to be grilled over uh, 
the board's handling of some things related to the 2020 elections uh, that Republican lawmakers did not like. And then we're also now seeing uh, Democratic lawmakers filing a bunch of bills of their own to try to expand access to voting and you know all, all these sorts of uh, things, sort of that you're seeing at the national level with Congress as well uh, that has been in the news so much. And Danielle has covered a lot of that. That is definitely something that is not going to be going away, <laughs> whether it's next week or beyond in the legislature. Uh, so I am going to throw it over to her for a second to let her tell all of y'all about uh, what has happened so far and what next steps we might expect to see. Well, it's been a lot and it's going to be a lot. <laughs> um, so just to rehash a little bit, everything that happened this week goes back to the fall prior to the election when um, there were multiple lawsuits going through the court system. And basically there was a settlement to the surprise of the General Assembly that kind of changed up the rules of the election right before, it was five days before the election happened actually is when they finally settled. And there were like three big topics that the settlement focused on, but what ultimately happened was it expanded the number of days that we would, we as in North Carolina would accept the uh, mailed in ballots from absentee voters. I think it went from November 6th to November 12th. So it was six additional days. And, um, Basically, House Speaker Moore and um, Senate Leader Berger both felt that they did not get any say or any um, no prior knowledge of this settlement coming. And it basically changed rules that had been agreed upon uh, by the General Assembly back in the spring prior to the election. So this week they called into the Senate um, elections director, Karen Brinson Bell. She's the state elections director. And they absolutely grilled her on um, basically what her involvement in creating the settlement is, whether she was in conversations with who they call Democratic super attorney Mark Elias, or if she was talking to our attorney general, Josh Stein, or Governor Cooper about what this settlement would be. She ultimately said she wasn't part of any conversations with any of those people she did sit in on a portion of a three-hour meeting, which we had known from public records that had been released to us, that they discussed the settlement, but apparently didn't fully, um, she wasn't like part of the actual planning of the settlement. You know, it was a lot of Republicans, I keep saying, I don't know that it was actually three hours, I think it was just over two hours, but it was a very lengthy meeting. And it was like, an hour and 50 minutes of Republicans grilling her and maybe 10 minutes of Democrats getting a chance to praise her for allowing the election to go off as well as it did, because we did have the largest number of voters in an election this year, I think, in North Carolina history. And so that was a talking point for the Democrats is like you pulled that off, you pulled that off in a global pandemic, like that's great for you. But on the other side, you have Republicans saying you changed North Carolina's election laws basically illegally. They kept accusing her of breaking the law. They asked why they shouldn't demand her resignation. And um, she keeps going back to, I didn't change the laws. I changed rules. And you guys weren't in session when the settlement came up. So we had to act fast to make sure the election didn't have any more hindrance. One of the things she keeps saying is that um, if she didn't, if well, not necessarily her, but if her attorneys didn't act in that moment, 
there were other demands in that settlement that could have been put onto the 2020 election. And they felt like if they worked faster and made the settlement agreement, they wouldn't have a judge rule for these extra demands that were being asked. So it was it was a pretty brutal two hours. Yeah, well, and then, you know, we, we've seen after that, you know, uh, some top Republican senators came out and filed a bill saying that, OK, in the future, we are going to give ourselves power to essentially veto any settlements that, you know, the, the elections board might make. You know, it, the bill is not written in that strong of terms, but that's essentially what it says. And I imagine we'll we'll probably see that bill get fast tracked. You know, I don't, I don't think leadership has any interest in uh, in killing that. So you know, maybe we'll see that come up next week. Um, I, I'd imagine you know probably most likely scenario if I were a betting man, it gets passed and then vetoed by Roy Cooper. Um, but you know, I cannot see the future. <laughs> so we'll we'll have to wait and see on what happens there. Are are you expecting more legislation? to come out, Danielle, from what you've been hearing from Republican senators on this, obviously we, we did have a big bill uh, to, you know, kind of limit some absentee voting. As you mentioned earlier, you know, we did expand absentee voting for 2020 elections to, you know, many days after the election. You know, that was obviously a, a big complaint of former President Trump and some of his allies in some of the states that he lost. He did not complain about that in North Carolina, which was a state that he won. Um, but you do now see, you know, lawmakers moving to to kind of restrict that. I, I will note, you know, I, I looked into this back after we got some data from the elections board. We really didn't get that many ballots that came in really late after the election. Uh, there had been a lot of fears, obviously, everyone remembers about the Postal Service being delayed and, uh, you know, maybe intentionally so to stop ballots from coming in. But it was a very, very small number of votes that came in in that period that that settlement in question allowed for. Really, what you have here is more of a a, a philosophical argument uh, rather than one about the outcome of any election. I, you know, I don't think the number of ballots that came in during that period would have been enough to change any elections. Maybe it would have had an effect in the chief justice race one way or the other. Um, I'm not really sure because actually a lot of the uh, kind of later mail-in ballots did tend to lean Republican. So that's completely my understanding is there could have been a change to newbie winning just because that, I mean, that race was 401 votes. There were enough ballots that it could have shaped how that turned out. Right, exactly. Because, you know, people who were mailing their ballots in fairly late in the process tend to be more Republican than Democrat. So yeah, I, I, I had heard that same thing too, that it, there was a possibility it could have maybe actually tipped the Supreme Court race for the Chief Justice in in Sherry Beasley's favor. So, I, you know, ironically, you have this change that the Democrats wanted that ended up possibly hurting one of their own candidates. Um, and now, you know, may, maybe we'll hear Republicans, uh, you know, use that same line say, yeah, you know, this this would have hurt our candidate, but we still think it's the proper thing to do. So, you know, we're pushing for it anyways. So we'll see, you know, where where those two bills go, the one on the absentee voting and the one on the uh, settlements for the Board of Elections. Danielle, are there other lawsuits along those lines that you're expecting to come uh, as a result of what you've been hearing from everybody during all this? You said lawsuits, but I'm assuming you mean bills, but I'm guessing we're going to see a lot of both. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe that was a, uh, a Freudian slip. I am probably expecting some lawsuits along the line, too, but uh, 
I've heard lawmakers say they are expecting lawsuits. Um, yeah, I, I heard before the session even got rolling that we were going to see a lot of bills concerning the election in direct response to the lawsuits from last fall. And then um, just talking with lawmakers in the last two weeks, they're telling me, I mean, it's weird. They're, they're hinting that bills are coming. But when I was when I picked up on it, they backtracked and were like, we don't know what bills are coming. So I fully expect to see them. I'm not exactly sure what topics we're going to be seeing, except that it will have to do with the election and probably in response to everything we saw this fall. Yeah, well, you know, it's notable in the lead up to the 2020 election, there was a really big bipartisan bill that passed nearly unanimously, uh, making absentee voting easier at every level, you know, easier to apply for your absentee ballot, easier to fill it out, easier to send it in. But all of those rules only existed for the 2020 elections. They went away. And so we know the Democrats are going to try to bring some of those back permanently. It remains to be seen if Republicans will like those be permanent. Yes, they liked them for 2020 because of the pandemic, but maybe they're a little more skeptical of having that be permanent. Um, and then you also, uh, on uh, Thursday of last week, you had Democrats hold a press conference and lay out, uh, I believe, a slew of bills was the phrase our colleague Lucille Sherman used uh, <laughs> to to describe uh, their their planned slate of election bills. Um, a lot of it really mirroring what you're seeing at the national level with HR1, which is in the news right now, really kind of the center of that whole debate over whether or not to eliminate the filibuster in order to pass that. You know, I, I covered Eric Holder, the former attorney general, when he came to UNC in February, I want to say, and advocated for eliminating the filibuster uh, to be able to pass that. Um, so there is definitely, you know, some impetus there on the Democrat side to get a lot of those things passed, which leads me to believe they probably won't have much luck here in the Republican-controlled General Assembly. So if we do see any bipartisan action, it'll probably be along the lines of what we saw before the 2020 elections, um, you know, with some of the, the absentee mail-in voting thing. Because historically, you know, absentee voting has really kind of been favored by Republicans. It was really only last year that that became a more Democratic-oriented way of voting, uh, typically. And, you know, you, you heard that from a lot of Republicans who were very nervous uh, hearing uh, Trump talk about it, you know, saying, wait, <laughs> you know, we've got a lot of voters in rural areas who, you know, live far away from their polling place and prefer to mail it in. Um, and obviously, North Carolina is a very rural state. Uh, so, yeah, if we do see any sort of bipartisan compromise, I think it would be along those lines. Uh, but that certainly is not a guarantee. It remains to be seen. One area where we are seeing some bipartisan compromise, though, is on criminal justice reform. I teased this up at the top of the podcast. Um, last year, after the George, George Floyd protests really dominated much of the summer, uh, you saw lawmakers pass two criminal justice reform bills. Uh, one was a fairly minor one that affected, uh, you know, some uh, people who had been convicted of drug crimes, but it was pretty narrowly ta tailored. The other was actually really pretty sweeping um, in, in letting people get expunctions for old crime. So if you had committed crime in your past and then gone X number of years and, you know, differed for if it was, you know, misdemeanor or felony or how many misdemeanors. But, you know, if you had shown that you'd basically turn your life around, then you could get that charge expunged from your record. And that is huge for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it can be really hard to get a job to even get an apartment lease if you do get a job, if you've got a record. Um, and, you know, just for your own 
personal sense of well-being. You know, you say it's been 15 years since I've been out of prison. I have not gotten in trouble once since then, but, you know, people still just see me as a criminal. So the idea was to really, you know, it's called the Second Chance Act. And that was the idea, you know, let people have a second chance. So, so far this year, we've actually seen uh, one proposal to expand on that and actually give some additional options for that. Um, and I'm hearing rumors that we're going to get a another version of that with, uh, you know, the expunctions as well. So we'll see how that comes. But what we definitely know is happening is juvenile justice. Um, that is a really big theme this session. Uh, last week, the Senate passed a bill uh, that my colleague uh, Virginia Bridges wrote about. Really great story. If y'all missed it, you should go back and find it. Uh, North Carolina currently allows kids as young as six years old into the juvenile justice system. Uh, you know, she gave an example of one little six-year-old kid who was arrested by a police officer who saw him picking flowers at a bus stop and charged him with uh, destroying public property uh, since the bus stop, you know, is government owned. And I think most people can agree that that is not exactly uh, maybe the best use of the resources of the court system. Uh, So this bill would raise that age from six to 10 um, and would it would also make a number of changes for kids at the upper end of the juvenile justice system, 16, 17 year old kids. Um, but really the, the big headline is the raising the age from six to 10. Cause we're the only state in the country that puts kids as young as six into the juvenile justice system. Lots of states don't have a specific age, but the ones that do, it's usually 10 or 12. Um, so this would basically bring us in line, at least at the lower end with the rest of the country, instead of being the absolute lowest. There's a similar bill in the House that's also going to be in committee on Wednesday. Uh, That is sponsored by Democrats. The Senate one is sponsored by Republicans. So you do have clearly some bipartisan push on this. Then the other thing that really surprised me is uh, last week you saw Representative John Faircloth of Guilford County, who is the former police chief in High Point, uh, filed a bill to just get rid of life without parole for juvenile offenders. And, you know, that is pretty surprising, uh, you know, coming from a law enforcement Republican like him. And he has, you know, multiple other Republicans on this bill. So the fact that you have Republican sponsors on this, you know, including a, you know, law enforcement officer uh, who spent most of his career in policing on this, not just a bunch of lefty liberals, uh, that tells me that it's probably got a shot of going somewhere. You know, we'll see. Obviously, nothing is guaranteed at the legislature, but that that was pretty notable to even see that get filed. I, I think a lot of people are going to be happy to see that. You know, clearly, this is an area where the legislature has been able to find some bipartisan agreement. I mean, you know, in talking with the folks kind of behind the scenes of these bills, I'm talking with the ACLU as much as I am with Americans for Prosperity or the American Conservative Union. You know, this is really something that unites, uh, you know, not just politicians on both sides of the aisle, but special interest groups as well. So, you know, keep us posted, you listeners, if you uh, hear of any other bills on that topic coming up. But in the meantime, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Again, I am Will Doran here with Danielle Battaglia. We appreciate you. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters.
Thanks for listening.